Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is delayed a bit today, and he will be joining us soon. We have with us for the segment we are about to begin, Max Page, who is with us every Friday. Max Page is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and this is a segment we call Your State You. I want to start by asking Max about, well, I'd like to know about that terrible noise we have, which I would like to eliminate, which I do not understand. I just do not understand. Um, let me see if we can fix that, if that is possible. Well, that's better. Well, a little better. Okay. Max, can you hear me okay? Absolutely, Bill. Good morning. Okay. We're good. Technology has just blessed us by being cooperative. Listen, Max, I want to ask you, front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette today, tuition on rise across UMass system. You've been a professor at UMass for a long time. Um, you have been involved with the union there as well. You've been involved uh, sometimes acrimoniously with the uh, powers that be at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I, I, I was really quite shocked to see these numbers in the front page story on today's Daily Hampshire Gazette. Let me read two sentences, and then I want your reaction. The University of Massachusetts has agreed to increase tuition, room, and board next academic year as leaders on Beacon Hill disagree over creating a tuition lock system and how much to invest in public higher education. The UMass Board of Trustees voted during its quarterly meeting Wednesday to increase tuition for in-state undergraduates by 2.5%. Get this. In-state undergraduates by two and a half percent for the upcoming academic year to seventeen thousand three sixty-four. But we're not done. Room and board costs are also rising on the Amherst campus by four and a half percent to fifteen thousand seven fifty-six. So if you want to go to school and you have to have room and board, and most students do, and you have to pay tuition, which everyone does, you add 17364 to the 15756 We're talking about $33,000 a year for tuition, room, and board undergraduate costs at the University of Massachusetts for in-state students. Uh, Max, most people can't afford that. And to take out loans to cover it, that seems appalling. What is going on here? I thought we were the state that was really enthusiastically backing public higher education. Help me out. Well, Bill, um, we have not been uh, the enthusiastic supporter of public higher education. We have been uh, steadily over the past 20 years or so cutting funding for public higher education, which is why uh, while there's a downward line in funding per student has, has gone down, we have seen some of the most rapid rises in tuition and fees. That's why we, the Massachusetts Teachers Association, have put forward the Cherish Act, which is a, which is a blueprint for high-quality and debt-free public higher education for every resident. We believe that every student should be able to attend a public college or university, community college, state university, UMass campus. They may have to pay a little. Uh, if they have that kind of money from their family, they may have to work a little, but they should be able to graduate debt-free as they used to. We used to have a system where students graduated debt-free even from the most expensive campus, UMass Amherst. Now that same student graduates with, with about $35,000 in debt. So uh, in other words, I am hoping that in fact, the work of the legislature will lead us towards dramatic investments 
in public higher education, including student scholarships, and head us towards a guarantee that students can graduate debt free, and then these tuition increases could be rolled back. So that's the, that's our goal coming out of the fair share campaign, that winning the millionaire's tax with with hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more, now available for spending on high quality debt free public higher ed. One proposal before the legislature, Max, is to guarantee students what the cost will be during the four years, a tuition lock, I think it's called. And that doesn't seem to have universal support on Beacon Hill either. What the, the students need to guess on how much more they're going to have to pay every year. It's not a good idea to simply tell them, here's the cost. What's what's that problem about? Well, the, the governor, to her credit, proposed that in her budget proposal that a student arriving at UMass next fall would have that tuition, whatever it is next fall, for the next four years. Uh, the House of Representatives just moved forward its budget, or at least put its budget forward for debate, did not include that. So let's see if that happens in the Senate. So, and I think it's really important for students to have uh, clarity about what they're going to owe. But just even if you if you had a student with a tuition lock, they're still going to owe tens of thousands of dollars in debt. Our goal in the MTA is to have debt-free public higher ed, not just a kind of a reliable knowledge about how many tens of thousands you'll have in debt once you graduate. We want to roll that back so a student working 10 hours a week uh, and working class students especially will know that they will leave college with a degree and no debt. But that is not, as I see it, and correct me if I'm wrong, part of what we have is the proposal yet. In this year's well, actually, budget. Well, the, the governor in her proposal for using fair share monies puts a dramatically more money into our scholarship programs. And the Senate president, for her part, eloquently articulated a goal of at least achieving um, free community college this year, perhaps on the way to having debt free four year universities in, in, in the future. So I think we're actually going to we're in the middle of a good debate. I, I expect and hope that the Senate will go much further in terms of guaranteeing more funds uh, for scholarship overall and really pioneering a true debt free uh, program for community colleges this year. Well, thank you, Max, for talking me off the ledge, because as I read the story and saw these numbers, this morning, I must say, I, I was appalled at what the cost is for an in-state tuition to go to the state university. And thanks for giving me and us that hope. Listen, I know you have a meeting to run to, but I also know you've had strong reaction to some things that have happened around finances and uh, uh, budgets and tax cuts recently in the legislature. So the microphone is yours to share those thoughts with our well, listeners. Well, let me say what the, what the House of Representatives did yesterday was to vote on a 1.1 billion dollar tax package this uh, and and many of those tax cuts one could argue are good they are for renters and for families with children and people caring for elderly or the disabled so you can argue those are really positive tax cuts but over 400 million dollars permanent tax cuts will be given to some of the wealthiest people in the state this just months after the, the 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 people spoke at the ballot booth and passed the fair share amendment to tax the very wealthiest more. So I find this and our union finds this appalling that this would be proposed and it passed 
with only three negative votes. And I'm afraid to say not a single rep from the West in our area voted against this tax package. They are all good people and they all have great ideas about how to invest in K-12 schools, in the environment, in rural aid. But I think it needs to be asked why they would, after supporting the fair share amendment, now be willing to give back hundreds of millions of dollars to the very wealthiest based on specious claims that the millionaires are going to leave, that we won't be competitive. These are all been disproven, and it's uh, very disturbing to see this kind of uh, false backlash to uh, the passage of one of the most important uh, bills that we have won, which is the constitutional amendment to create a tax on the very wealthiest. Max, I know you have to run, but before you do, can you tell us what more specifically what we're talking about? Are we talking about reduction sure. in income tax and estate tax? What are we talking about? We have uh, dramatically changing the estate tax. And again, there may be a few people who you could argue are middle uh, or upper middle class who will benefit. The vast majority of the estate tax changes will go to the very wealthiest multimillionaires and billionaires. Number two is rolling back short-term capital gains. That is the people who invest tons of money in back and forth sales of stock of stocks and bonds. These are the very wealthiest, the 1%. And then there's another change that is probably too complicated to go in right now uh, for corporations that will also lower their tax bill. Those add up to more than $400 million. And they're not like one-time thing. These are changes to the tax code that will go on and on. So when people start to say in next year or the following year when we have a recession, wait, where'd all the money go? We'll have to look back to the overwhelming number of state reps and maybe senators, we'll see, who who said, well, sure, let's give money back to the rich um, after we pass the fair share amendment. We're going to leave it there. Max, I know you have to run. Thanks for spending time with us today and every week. Thank you, Bill. Have a great weekend. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome back to our show State Representative Natalie Blay, who is the state rep for the 1st Franklin District, which covers some 511-plus square miles. She has been a state rep uh, since 2019, elected in 2018, following the retirement of Steve Kulik. Representative Blay, thank you so much for being with us every month. We really appreciate your time and your insight. We were just talking to Max Page, the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, about the budget, and I know you have been fighting, and he made mention of fi the fight for increased funding for rural schools in Massachusetts. The budget came out, I guess, yesterday. Where does that stand? Yeah, thanks, Bill. It's great to be with you, and I have to say that I really appreciate you in, in really shining a light on the legislative process. You know, every time we talk and, and ensuring that we don't talk in, in you know, government acronyms that people don't understand, I, I just want to mention how grateful I am to you for, for that. I just um, love it when the show becomes a total love fest. Don't you, Dan? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it and, is and, so and, true. And, and, and if, 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 Buzz weren't, if Buzz weren't late coming in today on purpose, he has, a, he has an appointment he had to be at, um, you know, he would be blushing. So we're all here. Thank you, Representative Blake. <laughs> no, I really, you know, you really dig deep on these issues. And I, it, it is so important uh, for everyone to understand how government works for them. 
And the budget process is certainly a big part of that because it's how you know, we as a commonwealth determine how those dollars are spent. So as, as a member of the Ways and Means Committee, I have been um, attending committee hearings across the entire state. Uh, you know, as, as you know, in March of this year, the governor presented her very first budget. This is later than normal because it is her first term. Uh, typically, the governor's budget, H1, is filed in January. Uh, and in March and April, the Joint Committee on Ways and Means holds budget hearings across the entire Commonwealth. And each one of these hearings focuses in on a different area, uh, a different secretariat uh, in area of spending. So, you know, over those last several weeks, we've been, tra as members of the committee, have been traveling all across the Commonwealth uh, two hearings, including one in Springfield at Springfield Tech, uh, where we focused on public safety, and one at UMass Amherst, where we focused on education. And these hearings are an opportunity for us as the committee to hear directly from administration officials about the proposed budget and for us to ask questions. And, and I have to say, it's really wonderful to be on the committee with other, I think there are two other legislators from Western Massachusetts, Pat Duffy, uh, from Hoyoke and Orlando Ramos from, oh, and, and Bud Williams from Springfield. Carlos Gonzalez uh, was also at the hearing in Springfield. Uh, Senator Joe Comerford is also on the committee. And you know, having people from Western Massachusetts on the Ways and Means Committee allows us the opportunity to ask those questions that really shine a spotlight on regional equity and how this administration is ensuring that those tax dollars are equitably being spent across the entire Commonwealth. So okay. that resulted in the House budget, uh, a $56.2 billion spending package uh, being put forth in the House on Wednesday. Uh, we will, uh, today at 5 p.m., amendments are due. And over the next week, legislators will review and co-sponsor and lend support to their colleagues. And the last week of April is budget week for the House. So we'll be in that week debating uh, the proposed budget that we put forth on Wednesday, uh, looking at those amendments and voting on a final House budget. Uh, the Senate will then take theirs up in April and May, and uh, we will then conference those two bills together. So, Representative Natalie Blay, let me take us on a brief detour to... <laughs> okay. To, to, well, educate me as to something you were just mentioning with the assumption that we all know what the Ways and Means Committee is and what it does, and I'm not so sure that we all do. So why? what is Ways and Means and why is it so important? Yeah, the Joint Committee on Ways and Means really takes a look at the, the financial, the fiscal aspects um, of any legislation before uh, the legislature any bills before the legislature uh, that have a fiscal impact and uh, and also are in, it's a critically important committee, uh, as I've just described, in terms of uh, receiving that testimony from the administration, receiving testimony from the public about what is important to them uh, as we consider how best to spend state dollars. Um, so I, I've really enjoyed it because it not only allows me the opportunity to travel around the state and visit other members' districts and see um, you know, different, uh, different parts of the state, uh, but certainly the opportunity to, to hear about 
really every aspect of government and how it functions and how it's funded, how they're spending their dollars. Uh, and, and really, as I said, asking those difficult questions uh, to really pin down uh, how agencies are, agencies and departments intend to spend their money to ensure that there is regional equity across the entire Commonwealth, including right here in Western Massachusetts. Okay. Well, this gets us to the, a difficult question. Is this budget fair to Western Massachusetts? Is it fair to rural districts? Is it fair to rural districts in terms of education funding? And then I want to turn to some of the questions regarding higher education and taxes. But what's your view? Is this a more equitable? Is it equitable? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about the work of the Rural Schools Commission a lot uh, during our during our calls. And I, I'm really happy that uh, this budget does build off of the recommendations that were included in the Rural Schools Commission. It extends you know, the Student Opportunity Act to ensure that rural schools, the unique challenges that are facing rural schools are addressed. And the House budget increases the amount of rural school aid by 82%, uh, increases it to $10 million. And you know, there is a recognition that this does not meet the full commission's recommended, recommended amount of $60 million. Uh, but we, we knew that that was a big stretch. You know, we weren't going to go uh, from about $5 million to $60 million in one budget season, one session. So uh, this is certainly a recognition of the unique fiscal challenges that rural schools are facing, and we're going to keep at it to ensure that we're closing that gap. Um, the other thing I will note is the budget includes, and this was also addressed in the Rural Schools Commission, is how much we're spending on what is called per pupil minimum aid. Um, this budget does provide an additional $30 per pupil minimum aid, bringing the total amount to $60, which also makes a tremendous impact in our rural schools. And, and finally, I'll point out that for, you, <laughs> for before I was elected, you know, regional schools were clamoring for a 100% reimbursement rate for regional school transportation. Regional school districts are required to transport all students to and from school, and, and funding is restricted to students who live more than 1.5 miles away from the school. But despite that statutory commitment, the Commonwealth has never met that 100% reimbursement rate. And so I, I will say that I am extraordinarily happy to see that regional school transportation is proposed to be funded at 100 uh, percent, and that is a $26 million investment that I know will make a tremendous difference uh, to regional school districts across the Commonwealth, but certainly here in Western Massachusetts. And the reason that's so important to, re to rural school districts, I take it, is that transportation costs, when you were bringing students to and from uh, their, their homes uh, spread across a wide geographic area, it simply costs more to bring the kids to and from school than it does when they're, I don't know, taking the tea. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a promise that was made to schools that regionalized, you know, back when regionalization, regionalization first started. And there is a feeling that that promise was not kept. You know, if, if schools agreed to regionalize, then transportation costs were supposed to be covered, and they just weren't. And so as a result, towns have had to step up and provide that additional funding to fill that gap. 
now the state has come in and said, okay, we hear you. And believe me when I say the voices have been loud and clear uh, from Western Massachusetts that they wanted 100% reimbursement for regional school transportation. And this budget delivers on that, as well as many other things like universal school meals and a green school infrastructure program. Uh, you know, these things are, are really exciting. So, Representative Natalie Blay, is this important to all of the towns and communities in the 1st Franklin District, which you represent, the 18 communities? Because, as I take it, the school, the regional schools have a budget, and then they have to uh, have the proportional amount given to them by the towns, which are part of the regional schools. So it really affects every every town, I take it, and community. And you represent part of Greenfield, the city of Greenfield. It, mm-hmm. Does it affect every town, every municipality you represent? I would say that it does. And I think that what we've seen is, you know, for many of our communities, education costs are about 60% or more of a, a town's budget. And so when, when you're stretched that thin, uh, it really ends up pitting you know, our schools against our, our town, our municipal officials. And it, it's really a difficult situation to be in when we all want what's best for our kids and what's best for our teachers and what's best for our parents and families. Um, so by providing this infusion of funds through these various buckets, I do think it will provide some relief for for communities across Western Massachusetts. We are speaking speaking with State Representative Natalie Blay. She is the representative for the 1st Franklin District, which represents uh, 17 communities plus part of Greenfield. And we are going to continue this conversation. I want to know, I want to ask the representative about the budget. I want to ask about tax cuts. And I want to know about who wins in this budget and if there are any losers. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we continue our conversation with State Representative Natalie Blay, representative for the 1st Franklin District, some 18 communities in Franklin County, which she represents, including a good good portion of Greenfield and some 17 other communities. Representative Blay, we were talking during the break about, <clears throat> excuse me, good things in this budget. What are the best things from your perspective? <laughs> I, there, there's so much. It really is. It's hard for me to narrow it down. I, I do want to note that you know, this budget you know, does direct $1 billion <clears throat> in the new income surtax revenue, you know, money from the fair share amendment uh, towards investments in education and transportation this was this has been top of mind for constituents you know making sure that that fair share funding um, not only was spent on education and transportation but it was above and beyond Uh, so what we're seeing here is an even split between education and transportation and i was thrilled to see 261 million dollars in that income surtax revenue uh, directed towards investments in K-12 education like universal school mills. The budget proposes $161 million. Uh, this is permanent funding of the universal schools meals pilot program, which requires public schools to provide universal school meals to students free of charge. Uh, Massachusetts will be the fifth state in the country to make the program permanent. 
And what we have seen in the past is that, you know, by through this pilot program, more than 80,000 students have eaten lunch daily in schools since the program started. It saves a household up to $1,200 per child per year. And that this really important piece is decreasing stigma um, for students in school who may be facing food insecurity. So I, I was thrilled uh, to see this included. There's also commission, there are two commissions. One will study school meal nutrition to see about, you know, how, you know can we incorporate local foods, healthy uh, local foods, and uh, making recommendations on how to minimize school food waste. Uh, the other piece that's included in here is $100 million for a green school infrastructure program. And I, I have to say thank you to my colleagues, Rep. Don and Senator Comerford, uh, because they've been pushing hard for this green schools initiative, which uh, would fund a new competitive grant program that would assist public schools and districts to install uh, or maintain clean energy infrastructure. And as we're trying to meet our clean energy goals, I think that this program is really phenomenal. And I, I tip my hat to the two of them for working hard to advance it with constituents in, in their districts and certainly in the First Franklin. Uh, Representative Don, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I'd like to go back, if I might, to something that Max Page was talking to us about, and that is the uh, 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 tax package that was passed by the House that included uh, significant relief uh, uh, for uh, very worthy, very worthy goals. Um, he was also quite critical of some $400 million of tax cuts uh, for short-term capital gains and for a reduction or in the – or a, a, a reduction – not a reduction. It's, it's an increase in the deductions for the estate tax. And he said, particularly with regard to the short-term capital gains, that you know this is a boon to uh, people who don't – don't need it, um, and uh, that it's not was not a wise legislative choice. And I'm wondering what your feelings are about that. Yeah, all in all, I think if you look at the tax package as a whole that we voted on yesterday, <laughs> that it is a balanced, um, you know, fiscally responsible tax package that includes you know, expansion of the child and dependent tax credit that uh, doubles the senior circuit breaker, that um, expands the earned income tax credit. You know, those things are incredible. Those, those items are incredibly important to, um, to my constituents. And I've, I certainly have heard from them about the importance of expanding the child tax credit. Um, Could you stop there for a second, Rep Representative? Yeah, yeah, Could you stop there? Yeah. The child tax credit and the senior circuit breaker, if I heard you correctly, wh what are they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the child independent tax credit uh, was funded at nearly 500, uh, sorry, $460 million. Uh, and it expands the child tax credit to $600 for children under 13. And there was a two dependent per family cap. Uh, that was eliminated. And th this is phased in over three years. Uh, the current cap is at 180 or $240 per child uh, with that limit of two dependents. So now we're moving to $600 for children from that 180 and 240 um, and lifting that cap. And this will benefit 
uh, about 700,000 families and caregivers across the Commonwealth. So that is incredibly important. And we should, we should, piece, no, we should if, note that the tax credit yeah. is an actual reduction of that amount in taxes owed, right? Yes. Yes. And, and here in Western Massachusetts, where we see that our population is, is getting older, you know, we have um, some of the, as we look at our demographics and the uh, older folks in, in the Commonwealth and the senior circuit breaker provides a refundable tax credit to income eligible seniors. Um, and, and that doubles the base amount for the senior circuit breaker. Uh, so that, too, will be incredibly important for uh, seniors in my district and, and certainly something that I've heard a lot about from them. This will impact uh, over 100,000 uh, taxpayers in the Commonwealth, not only here in Western Massachusetts, but across the whole Commonwealth. So there is something for families with young children. There's something for the uh, senior, citi- senior citizens or elderly persons um, who receive, are these low-income uh Persons generally, or is this across the board, regardless of income? So, for the child and dependent, um, that I believe that there are some income, um, and and the senior circuit breaker, uh, there are income eligible pieces there. Uh, the other important um, factor, and I want to thank uh, another colleague. Um, Marjorie Decker, who's really been leaning on the earned income tax credit. This is a key program for reducing poverty in the United States. And um, it's it's been associated with improved health and educational attainment. And Massachusetts does provide its own state earned income tax credit that helps families to make ends meet by matching a percentage of the federal credit. And the House is proposing to increase that state match of the federal of the federal earned income tax credit, which we call the EITC, uh, from 30% to 40%. Um, so that is uh, that will benefit almost 400,000 uh, taxpayers across the Commonwealth. So you know, that, too, is an income-eligible uh, program that can really make a difference for individuals. You mentioned the <clears throat> those who will benefit from the tax package and the, de- the decreases in taxes. Um, what Max Page was critical of was the uh, decrease in taxes for short-term capital gains and the estate tax. Um, and he did note that it passed overwhelmingly. I'm wondering what you think about inclusion of those provisions. Yeah, I mean, on the estate tax, we, we heard a lot about this. And you know, there's, there's, it's currently uh, at $1 million, um, which is the tax threshold of $1 million. Uh, the governor's proposal, I believe, was at $3 million. Um, so I think the $2 million. Ex- what, what, <laughs> what, what we're talking about is that uh, <clears throat> under Massachusetts law, if you have an estate of less a million, less than a million dollars, you pay no estate tax. But if you have an estate over a million dollars, you pay an estate tax uh, of increasing amounts beginning at the first dollar. And the governor's proposal, as I understand it, was to raise the threshold for exclusion to $2 million, or maybe, maybe it was three originally. I think it's $2 million. The governor's, the governor's proposal, yeah, the governor's proposal was $3 million, and what the House proposed is, is to increasing that threshold uh, to $2 million, and, you know, it, it eliminates the so-called cliff effect 
which you just mentioned, which so it will no longer tax the entire estate, just the amount over that new threshold. Um, so this this is certainly something that I heard from constituents about. Uh, I think that the two million dollars is a reasonable approach between the current one million dollars and and the three million dollars proposed by the governor. Um, I would like to, and we should note that the federal threshold for federal tax, I think, is like five or six million dollars now. So that's really quite extraordinary uh, in terms of the exclusion. Uh, I would like to go back to one question that Max raised that I actually am uh, uh, sympathetic with his, his uh, position on, which is I don't understand the uh, benefit for short-term capital gains. Listeners, don't don't glaze over. This is actually pretty interesting. Someone buys a stock on. <laughs> Uh, someone buys a stock, for example, on uh, uh, February 1st. They hold it for three weeks. They sell it because it spiked in price. They make $100,000, and that is now going to get a tax benefit. I, I don't quite understand why that shouldn't be taxed. I don't see the value in short-term trading and how that helps us as a commonwealth uh, and why it shouldn't be fully taxed as income. I, that, that one I don't really understand. Can you help me out? Yeah, I mean, and the current law, um, and this, as you said, we don't want anybody to glaze over. This is complicated stuff, uh, and I'm not a, a tax expert, so I'm going to do the best that I can to explain this. Um, under the current law for short-term capital gains, uh, capital gains on assets that are held for less than one year, as you just noted, are taxed at 12%. If you look at other states across the nation, uh, the taxes on short-term capital gains uh, are at a, a lower rate. So if you look nationally at what the short-term capital gains rates are, you know, only Massachusetts, you know, um, Wisconsin, and South Carolina are at those, those higher rates. So what the House has proposed to do is to reduce that rate of taxation from 12% to 5% over a two-year period of time. Uh, so in January of, January of 2023, there would be an 8% rate of taxation, and in 24, it would be a 5% rate of tax taxation. Representative um, Blay, I got to say, I yeah, think you explained yeah. that really well, and I only think we lost really? between you and me. I, what would we lost? Maybe half the audience? No, I, that's my fault. <laughs> No, I, I think it's I really it more exciting. It's tax policy. <laughs> it's tax policy. <laughs> well, I had I had read an article uh, just quickly uh, up that uh, I was on Mass Live about the number of Massachusetts residents who apparently are moving out of Massachusetts and maybe going to New Hampshire and other states. And according to this Mass Live article, it, it implied that the governor was willing to do this tax cut in order to keep some of these individuals in the state of Massachusetts and that instead of having them to move out. I guess we had a, a net uh, migration out of the state. I don't know if you want to address any of that. No, that is true. And, uh, and I think, you know, if, if I didn't state it at the beginning, I think that this tax package, and I think that's important, that you can't look at this piece by piece by piece. You have to look at this as a tax package coupled with the budget the very strong budget that the House has just put forward. And those two things together uh, are really, you know, a fiscally responsible uh, budget that certainly um, 
takes care of those most in need. Uh, it, it really, when we're looking at those additional funds, puts that money into education and transportation. And I will note on the short-term capital gains piece, I think it's important to, to note that the excess capital gains revenue is deposited into the stabilization fund, which is the rainy day fund. It's not put into the general fund. And we did, you know, under this House proposal, the rainy day fund is projected to meet uh, the $9 billion mark. Uh, so that, that is critically, critically important to, to maintain that funding in the rainy day fund uh, for, for unstable financial times in the future. Representative Blake, we're going to leave it there. We thank you so much. I thought you did terrific on tax policy. It's not easy, <laughs> really. That was great. Thank you so much. for. Uh, thank you. I don't know. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so very good much. Good to talk to you. Great. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. And this is Art Beat. Donna Belcasis has the day off, and so we have our very special guest host, Kim Carlino, who has been with us before, who has with her and us today a very special guest. Kim, the microphone's yours. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me back on. So um, I'm here to talk about um, an exhibition that's up at the Arno Maris Gallery um, in uh at Westfield State. Um, it's called Visual Languages, and I curated five artists together, including Donna Bell and Zach Buner and Wayne One. And we have Cyril Conan here, um, a Boston artist, to talk about visual languages, his visual language. Um, he's a painter and public artist. So welcome to the show, Cyril. Good morning. Thank you. Hi. Hi. So you have um, you have several paintings um, in the exhibition, and you know the the theme of the exhibit is about visual language and pairing. Um, you know we're all working in abstraction, and so you know kind of pairing all these different styles um, of work together, and in a way to kind of talk about. Um, the different ways that artists go about creating a visual vocabulary. And so can you describe your visual style and what your visual language is like? Hmm. So, hmm. So my visual language, I, there's a lot of lines and a lot of hard edges and a lot of dots. Um, I don't really know what they mean. I don't feel like I need to figure that out. I just enjoy making these big compositions that rely on weight of line, weight of circles, and how the changing of colors throughout like a space, whether it be a canvas or a wall, how it affects you visually walking through it. Could, 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 can you describe this for us? Since we are on radio, you talked about edges, lines, and dots. And mm-hmm. what, do we, what do we see? I mean, and, and you said they're large. How large? And... Uh, give, give us a visual here. As large as we could, uh, as I am allowed to make them generally would be the best. Uh, so it kind of towers over over you. I think it's a, a, it kind of in that op, eye, uh, op art kind of lens, but also with a maybe graffiti. I, I grew up in Queens in New York. 
uh, and I love hip hop, and I think there's got a flair of that in there. Um, I'm a I'm of Celtic background. I feel like your artwork, no matter who you are, is, uh, ends up being about you one way or another. And in, in the Celtic uh, art in history, there's always lots of circles and spirals and these types of visual effects. How, how big yeah. are, are these paintings, and are they are they? Or, or, uh, the biggest one I've ever done was 50 feet high by 30 <laughs> feet wide. It was yeah, it was uh, it was through the city of Boston uh, for the transformative art project, and uh, I had to get lift operate certified to do it. And uh, and I, I also work as small as just work on paper, like eight by eleven. Um, one translates great into the other, scale wise. Okay. Could you just stop there just for one? Let's just pause here for just for another half a minute, if we could, please. Because 30 by 50 feet, it's going to be hard to fit in anyone's living room. I, 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 <laughs> what's, do you have, do you have uh, paintings of the – are these paintings? Or, I mean, are we talking about oils, I, acrylics? What are, what are we talking about? I make them as paintings first uh, of, in ratio one to one, uh, one inch to one foot. And then, so I just make the paintings at home and get them approved. However, the the project unfolds, and and then just translate it into large scale. Um, and because it's because of the because it's lines and circles and color, it's, it translates really well large scale. I, I'm I'm now thinking about how the viewer is listening to this and trying to get a visual. Um, think of razzle dazzle ships of World War One. The razzle dazzle camouflage. That was a big inspiration for me as well. So let me go back to uh, Kim Carlina. We want to reintroduce our our guest and where this exhibit is. Sure, sure. Um, So, Cyril. You you know, you're you do a lot that's in the in the public realm. I think it's uh, I think it's really interesting how you know, you kind of go about translating the work in the studio to um, to the, that huge, you know, 30 by 50 foot scale. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about how, how, you know, based on like all of these influences, like how your work is kind of, or how that language has evolved over the years to kind of like get to where it is now. Mm-hmm. I, I often, I, I like to describe as what I do in my studio every day, like the crazy guy in the basement. That's where my studio is in my basement at home. Um, yeah. All the kids, neighborhood kids come to the studio and they all probably think I'm like a nutty guy just in there painting all these colorful dots and lines and stuff. But um, what yeah. I, what I, it, my process I feel like uh, is most comparable to like, it's like I just sit around and I play chess with myself, right? And so as I'm making a painting, whether it be a mural or a little thing on paper, I put down a line, I put down a color, I just kind of start the process and I have all these set rules. And then every once in a while I'll break a rule and that'll make something new happen. Um, Mm -hmm. And so every action has an opposite reaction as far as putting color or shape down. And I I minimize it to line and circles. Um, And it's infinite, I could do it forever. And it's so much yeah. fun. And when those mistakes happen, it's magical. And that's what moves the yeah. whole process forward. Let, let me ask yeah. uh, Kim, Car- Kim Carlin, I want to ask you a, a question uh, briefly, please. Okay. Um, you, you have, uh, is part of this uh, 
exhibit that you have, this exhibition that you've curated, you have Cyril Conan, who is with us today. Uh, the other artists, are they, are they, uh, is there art in this, of this ilk as well? Yes, yeah. So everyone's really working with this, uh, with, you know, kind of in abstraction with line, geometry, pattern, and recombining it in, you know, it, through their own lens. Um, and so there's a lot of connection and, and overlap, um, but it's a mix of paintings, works on papers, and we have, you know, one thing that's interesting about the exhibition is that all the artists work in the public realm as well. As well. And so I was wanting people to kind of think about the work that's done in the studio and how that visual language gets translated. So, How long is the exhibit up for? We just have about 30 seconds left. Yeah, so April it's 28th. up through um, the end of April, April 28th, yep. And it's at Westfield State in the Eli Campus Center at the Arno Maris Gallery. Okay, we leave it there. We thank you so very, very much, Kim Carlino, in for Donabel Cassis and Cyril Conan. Sounds like an extraordinary, so extraordinary exhibition. I can't wait to see it. Thank you also very much for being with us. This has been Artbeat on Talk the Talk. Please remember also to walk the walk. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. The drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is off today. We have with us in the studio Claire Higgins, who is the executive director of Community Action Pioneer Valley. Of course, she was the mayor of Northampton for almost 12 years, beginning in 2000. I want to have your perspective on something today, Claire Higgins, because it is very much in the news, as we've heard from uh, Max Page, president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and as well, Representative Natalie Blay, and that is budget issues and how they affect all of our lives very directly beginning now. And your organization, uh, Community Action, has a very, very, as an integral part of it, uh, child care and early education. And I would like to know how that works in your is it catchment area. Is that the right social service term? Maybe sure. uh, how it works here in Western Massachusetts, how child care is actually and how early education is delivered. Um, and then I want to talk to you about what this budget will do to those services. But let's start with the area that community action covers and what the services are for kids and how they are educated at a young age. So talk to me. Well, good morning, and thanks for having me on. Um, I would invite an early educator, but this teaching shortage is so so cha challenging that we need every person on deck to be actually in classrooms with children. Um, so Community Action Pioneer Valley has been a Head Start grantee for uh, since the practically since the dawn of Head Start and has offered early education services uh, to make that Head Start day be a full day and a full year for, I don't know, probably 40 years. Um, okay, let's stop there for one second. Head Start services, what age? So that's a real, so let me differentiate the two. And, okay. and, and this is like the, 
50,000 feet looking down, what does the federal and state governments do for early education and care for kids? The, the here, let me give you my microphone, and then you can have your microphone. You can do the whole thing here. That's really <laughs> the federal government um, uh, invests in, in, early, in young children for early education and care in two ways. One is Head Start, which was the sort of banner program for Linda Johnson at, at the start of the war on poverty, give children who are poor a leg up, a head start in life. And that was primarily half days for the poorest children. It still is for the poorest children. You have to be very low income to qualify for Head Start. Um, but we have blended the, that Head Start money with a different pot of money that the federal government gives to the state that has to do with providing care for children full day and full year so that we can help working families, um, parents who are at work or going to school, to have care for their children as they're doing what they need to do to help their family. And what ages are we And we about? start at birth. We take kids at a very young age, infants, and we uh, up until um, they go to... Now, what, what Massachusetts has, full-day kindergarten. Now, you re when I f first I got into, uh, into the early education world in Massachusetts in the s late 70s, there was no full-day kindergarten, and kindergarten was not required in Massachusetts. And Northampton didn't even get full-day kindergarten until the late, late 90s. So now we go birth to five, and five is when they go to kindergarten. And we should note that Claire Higgins, prior to becoming mayor of Northampton, in fact, was herself an early childhood educator. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, if I remember this quote correctly, that one Claire Higgins at some point said, what prepared me most for being mayor was being an early <laughs> kindergarten teacher. Well, an early educator. <laughs> Something like sure. that. <laughs> Listen, that, that's kind of a joke and kind of true because the, the brain development happens, the most brain development we do as humans is in the first five years of life. So... Everything that children are testing with us and trying with us and learning from us are the same things we do as adults, right? So uh, that's why the investment in those early years is so important. The Great Society was on to something about the Head Start program, right? But at that time, the economy was such that no, a, a, a minor, less than 50% of women were in the workforce. Now, of course, poor women were always in the workforce, but uh, less than 50% of the total. I'm not sure what the statistic is. Now, uh, two two, uh, parents have to work. It, it, it's, it's not so common anymore to have one parent that stays home while the other parent works. And now, if they're staying home, it's because they can't afford childcare. So um, I just, uh, finishing quickly what the feds do, they give the money to the state, the state matches it, and then they, um, they contract with providers to do the work to take care of children. We contract with the state government for full-day, full-year care, and contract with the federal government for the Head Start program. We have sites throughout Franklin, Hampshire, and we Western Hampton County for Head Start. So these are community action sites, pro sites yeah. programs? We have a daycare center at the Vernon Street School, or a child care center at the Vernon Street School here in Northampton, Amherst Community Child Care in Amherst. We have two sites in Turner's and one in Greenfield. We have... a. Um, did I say two sites in Amherst and one in Greenfield? Yep. Um, and we have uh, a, a one large site in Westfield that serves Westfield and West Springfield, and then a, a, a small site in Agawam that's a half-day program. Now, is Community Action the only agency here no, in this region no. that provides? No. No, that's a really good question. So what happened over time was there were these contracts that were put out to, for providers to take care of children, paid for by the federal government through the state, and 
And then the Republicans took hold of Congress, and you might remember welfare reform, um, where um, Bill Clinton said he would get rid of welfare as we know it. Well, one of the things that he got rid of was the fact that if you were on um, public assistance and you went to, um, what, what they did was say that if you went, needed, needed child care, you could get it, but what they did was make that a voucher system, similar to what the Republicans at the time wanted to do for public education. So I always think of it as a little bit of a stalking horse for that. So there's a voucher system for, there's a combination now of contracts with providers like us, and, and like Community Action, but also a, a, a voucher contract with many providers across the region. All right. Well, without uh, getting into numbers that are going to make everyone's eyes glaze over, I would like to understand this. Uh, a person from a, from a modest income. Or right. A low uh, income. So now we're getting how, to how much does it cost. Yes. Yes. So that's a whole different question. How it's, much does it cost the person? I mean, right. it's so one in our program, there's a sliding fee scale. So it costs them very little, right? And the federal government, during the build, uh, the build Back Better debate, had a child care bill on the table that would have cost people no more than 7% of their income. We, for many years, had a sliding fee scale uh, in our programs that was state set, but the numbers were all over the map, depending on what your income was. Now it's been standardized to 7%. And people under, I think, 50% uh, don't pay a fee, or under 80% don't pay a fee. The... Under 80% of, of median uh, income. Um, so, but the problem is that the state, it's what it costs. The problem with child care, and Janet Yellen wrote a report saying all of this during the middle of the pandemic. You, you for, can't. For, for Janet Yellen, Janet, former head of the Federal Reserve. And now currently Treasury Secretary said, you, um, and I'm going to quote it because I think it's very powerful. Um, what she said is, child care is, is a textbook example of a broken market. And one reason is that when you pay for it, the price doesn't account for the positive things it does for our society. And honestly, the price that parents can pay does not allow providers to pay the staff what they need to do to make to be able to stay. Our staff are eligible for our benefits, right? They're not making enough money to stay. So, and the worst thing for kids is the fact that teachers come and go because the job of the first five years of life is to bond with adults, learn, grow in a trusting environment. Here's, this is Dan. I have a question for you. How did we get to this patchwork system? I mean, what is underlying it? Because, you know, you were talking about those first five years is so important yeah. to human development, and yet we chronically underfunded. It seems like the entire funding model is backwards. It's okay. like we tried to throw it in K-12 and higher ed, but it's like at that point, you've really missed the initial investments right. that you should have made that you would get the long-term results from. Yeah, I think there's a couple reasons why. First of all, remember that this was work that women did at home for nothing mm -hmm. forever, right? And then, and also, as you look back, the long history of public education in this country, it wasn't um, through high school for years. I mean, you know, started, it, it, elementary education is what we did. <laughs> then we've added to it over time, mm -hmm. right? Public Universities came in as land grant universities after, after the Civil War. Civil War, think, right? Yeah. So it, it's an incremental growth in that. But the birth to five piece has always been seen as the family's province, mm. not the the responsibility of the government. We came super close under Richard Nixon when there was a comprehensive early childhood bill that was vetoed by Nixon, and we haven't really come that close ever again. Mm. So to Dan's point. Isn't the lack of investment 
in early childhood a I don't know how quite to put this uh, uh, generously. Dumb. Yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> it, it's. It, I mean, you end up spending way more than that um, on 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 the the cost of education for kids who are not prepared, for example, to start kindergarten or first grade or second grade or fifth grade. And then there's all this, and then there's all this hand wringing about how how we could uh, not not provide the education the kids need. Well, when you when kids start, uh, yeah, behind. Where they need to be. I mean, it's not the kids' fault. Remember what birth to f- birth through four is really about. It's it's yes, it's about quote education, but it's also social emotional skills. It's learning how to how to restrain yourself and you know self control. It's about self regulation. It's about build, learning how to build trust. All of those things. If k- kids can know what their colors are, but if they don't know how to ask for help or how to res- restrain their anger, all those other things. Those are a detriment to them being successful through their school career as well, right? So you, you, you're absolutely right, and it starts with the relationship of the teacher in the classroom with the children in the classroom. And when the pay is so low, the teacher turnover in early education is astronomical, and that's affirmatively not good for kids. So what has to happen? The rates need to go up. Now people by rates you mean the what what the providers are paid, what the family child care provider or the teacher in the classroom is paid. And right now the federal government on the Head Start side is very conscious that they need to think about having the rates be the payment be higher for teachers. They they know that has to happen. Different funding stream. On the early education side, remember it was based on a market theory of, of vouchers, right? And we ha- the state has to survey the market decide what the market cost is, and then pay us what the market cost is. The market cost is not the cost of high quality. It's just what people can afford to pay. So if you look at the map of Massachusetts and what they pay in Massachusetts, the state pays, and no criticism then, this is the federal rules, it's a map of poverty, right? So it's a map in the poorer parts of the region. The rates are very low, and, and that means people can't provide high, as high quality care as they want. So then there is a huge private market. Those folks are also, you know, charging parents tuition. And they can't pay what people need either. So during the pandemic, the state came up with a support structure called a C3 grant. I can't remember what this, all three of the Cs are, but it's, it, it, it is a supporting grant to all the child care providers that are taking some state kids. Long, complicated, because, but you want it to get to the budget. So I'll tell you what's in the budget this year, because... Um, I'll tell you what I would like to do. I want to go back now, having had this much of an introduction. uh, I want to ask you to go back and review for us something that I asked you before that you did answer, but I think I'll understand it better this time. The difference between Head Start and early childhood education? So early childhood education is, is a global comprehensive term, right? Head Start does early childhood education. Child care providers do early child education. I always add education and care because the fundamental thing that kids need is education and care, right? And you know what? So do elementary school kids and secondary. Good, good child care is good education, and good, good early education is care, right? So let's just keep that in mind. Head Start funds a more comprehensive program in that they have a person who works with the family, they have a health person. They do um, have additional staff that can do 
um, you, you know, run parent groups and give all kinds of emotional support and social support to parents, not just the children, have, have um, developmental um, work, people who understand the developmental needs of children on staff and work with children who might have a special needs. And also we provide transportation when we can find drivers. So it's much more comprehensive than the baseline teacher in the classroom um, 364 days a year that the, or 348 if you count the holidays, that the, the state contracts with most of the providers for. We are speaking with Claire Higgins, who is the executive director of, uh, of Community Action, Pioneer Valley. When we come back, I'm going to ask about, does this state budget solve or at least move significantly towards solving this funding crisis for Head Start and early childhood education? We'll find out the answer to that right after these messages. There'll come a time, there'll come a time When the world won't be singing When the world won't be singing Flowers won't grow Flowers won't grow, no Bells won't be ringing No bells won't be ringing Who really cares? Who's willing to try? Who is willing to try? You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank. With offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin Counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. You spend seven or eight hours a night together, and you're supposed to decide if you're right for each other in a matter of minutes? This has never made sense to me. So, when you're in my store, trying to decide which mattress is right for you, at some point, I think you and I just need to stop talking. I need to leave you alone, give you plenty of time to lay down, and maybe even forget you're in a furniture store. Hi, it's Robin. Robin from Talon. Think about it. Seven or eight hours, night after night, and what do you really know about mattresses? I don't mean to make it daunting or complicated. I just think you need two things, information and time. If I give you as much information as you want and as much time as you need, I think you'll settle on a mattress you'll be happy with. At least that's the way it seems to go for most people. Talon Furniture, the small, unhurried furniture and mattress store just down the hill from Amherst College. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Modest, very minimal increase in the police budget, largely uh, due to just regular contractual um, obligations. Holyoke is nothing like Northampton and Greenfield. The quality of life uh, issues, our demographics, very, very different. So I can never compare our police departments. The challenges we have going on in our city are very, very different. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Claire Higgins, Executive Director of Community Action in Pioneer Valley. We've been talking about 
early childhood education and how it is and isn't funded and whether our kids are or are not getting the education they need in order to prepare them for a lifetime of learning. Claire Higgins, I'd be interested to know whether we're making any progress in this area and specifically, does the new state budget, one of which is in front of the House of Representatives of the state and has been this past week, there's a budget, of course, prepared and proposed by Governor Maura Healy. Tell us, is this good, bad, indifferent, better, a little better? What do you say? Um, I would say that um, I, without, I haven't read every line in the House budget, but the House budget looks pretty good for early education. And um, we know that the House typically has been our best friend in the three branches over the whole time of, of um, Speaker DeLeo's tenure. And it looks like Speaker Mariano is, is continuing that tradition. Um, but I want to say that um, child care was limping along before the pandemic, and then it crashed during the pandemic. We have lost a lot of slots in the state. Many of them private. When you say losing slots, you mean? You mean spaces for children. There's not enough room. There are not enough programs. Programs, enough. program have closed. Okay. Pro programs have closed. So that's just remember that we're at a new normal, which is less care for kids, not more. So meaning fewer kids have a place to place go. Place to go. That's correct. In, in in a time when women are in the workforce at, at you know record levels, and and families need jobs, right? And employers need workers. Like this is. Child care is not only, and, and public schools are not only important for the health of our society, they're also important for the health of our economy, right? They're the infrastructure just as much as a road is. And it's, we're collapsing. So we can't hire people. 30%, 35% of our classrooms are closed because we can't find people to work at the salaries that we can pay. So I'm gonna, the governor put new money in to raise the rates to child care providers that take state money. She also funded that grant program I mentioned earlier for the providers who may only take a few state-funded children. Most of our children are state-funded. And she, there is um, money in there for child, the ch child care for the children of people working in child care centers, which is a really important advance at the same time that state's trying to encourage employers to provide child care. They're allowing us to now provide it for our own children, our own teachers' children. All of that's going to help. But we have a long way to go to build the system back up. I find this striking and just horrifying in, in, in many ways. I, I don't quite understand how families deal with the problem. They need both well, for two-parent families or uh, two guardians. Um, they need both of the adults or all right. of the adults to work. And if there's only one parent, of course. So people do shift work? And yeah, so I mean, how does I mean how, how do find, they get how are they, they getting they, by? They find unlicensed care. They find a relative or a neighbor who will watch the child. They, you know, we haven't even touched the places where it's been really hard. Always, always has been shift work. And how do people who are a single parent, for instance, worry about second shift? Or you know, how do we deal with parents who, who work for some of the companies that have on-demand shift scheduling where you don't know your shift till the day before? Right, those kinds of things we haven't even talked about. Right, but. But to just start to get back to kind of where we were with more stable When you say kind of where we were pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic needs a huge investment, right? And I, I, you know, because I, you know, because I think about sort of the history about this stuff, I looked in old Boston Globe ar archives 
I found an article from the 70s, from the 80s, from the 90s, at least one in the 2000s, the 2010s, about what are we going to do about child care? The teachers aren't paid enough and they're not staying in the field. Okay. So now we have 40 plus years of history that tells us that what we're doing isn't working. So there is some glimmers of hope in this budget because it's looking at it slightly differently. But we re if we don't solve the problem, and I'm trying to cram a lot in, in a short time, but if we don't solve the problem, the health of the state is at risk. Western Mass is losing population, not gaining population. Young families can't afford to start their life in Massachusetts because they can't find childcare. And the housing, the housing and childcare piece are two parts of the same equation. It's how do we build communities? How do we build families with housing that's affordable and childcare that works for them? And we, neither of them are working right now. We've already lost population in Massachusetts. That's going to continue to happen. Is the situation for early childhood education, for Head Start, for uh, uh, educating and caring for young children, is it worse here in Western Massachusetts than in Eastern Massachusetts? And is Massachusetts better or worse than the rest of the country? I know it's a big question, but I'd appreciate some perspective on that. So two things. We have some of the best licensing regulations in the country. So if you are going by we Massachusetts, we Massachusetts are our quality in terms of licensing is much higher. So I'd say that's true. And we also have the highest, we have some of the highest child care costs in the country. All of the Massachusetts counties are in the top 100 counties for high cost of care, and I think Suffolk is number one. Now, in, in Massachusetts, the Office of Early Education and Care, the Department of Early Education and Care, did a cost study to look at what the cost of providing higher quality care would be. They're not even able to reimburse us at being at the licensing standards with a living wage for people. Not a minimum wage, but a living wage. For so, and remember I said that the rates are based on a market survey, not based on what the cost of care is. So Western Mass, the North Shore, Worcester, and, and um, the, Cape and I, the Cape, the South Shore, Cape and Islands, all have lower rates than Metro Boston, even though our costs are not appreciably different. So, so they're paying us less to do the same work. Who's the they? Is this the, the state Department of Early ed Education and Care. Of the state? Of the state. They have to, they take the federal money, the feds say in order to spend that money you have to do a market study. They do the market study, it maps poverty across the state because the market only measures what people can pay, not what it costs to actually provide the service. And then we end up with this disparate rates across the state. There is some, we're doing a lot of work at the state level, have some really good allies in trying to get those rates, this rate issue fixed. And the feds- by, by saying that, you mean by increasing the rates in Western Mass to be approximate what they are in Boston? A lot closer, I hope. But I don't know if it'll happen in this budget year, but it is my hope we, we start closing the gap in this budget year. Well- Okay. Well, I, I do want to end on a hopeful note. So, Listen, I, I'm more optimistic than I have been in most of the years that Baker was the, was the go governor because Maura Healy understands the issue, but even more, she took her budget and went to the House, and the House actually gave us what we think we need. Not, not everything, but a building block to get to the next thing. All right. A final thought for us on how we are going to, I don't want to say solve, address this issue? I think, I think the challenge with early education and care is everybody thinks that's a private responsibility. Okay, maybe it's a private responsibility, but if it's a private responsibility, then you're not gonna, we're, we're gonna continue to decline as a region, as a state, 
and we will and honestly i'm getting old i need some people that are literate and caring to be taking care of me in the nursing home i don't and that's the outlook isn't good as if we continue to decline especially with young families so well leave it i'll leave it at that (laughs) (laughs) claire higgins is the executive director of community action pioneer valley we thank you so much for your time thank you is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome back to the show Julia Mintz, who is the writer, producer, and director of Four Winters, which will be shown at the Academy of Music this Wednesday, the 19th, at 6.30 p.m. Four Winters is a film that Larry Hott mentioned to us months ago on the show, saying... You really want to watch this film. This is an amazing documentary. Um, Long before it got all of the international acclaim that it has received in the last few months. And again, Four Winters will be shown at the Academy of Music this Wednesday, the 19th of April, 6.30, Four Winters. We are so pleased that Julia Mintz can come back and be with us on the show today because when we had her on a couple of days ago, one thing we didn't have the time to talk about was all of the local connections that this film has, and I think you want to know about that. Uh, Julia Mintz, let's, let's rewind the film just for a bit and tell us, if you would please, what is the story of Four Winters for those of our listeners who didn't hear the earlier interview and are not familiar with your film, and I want them to be familiar with this story. So give us the broad brush view, if you would please. Julia? Sure. Good morning. Uh, Fort Winters tells the story of the resistance during World War II of, that occurred in Eastern Europe from the forests of Belarus, Poland, Lithuania, um, Ukraine, and it really focuses in on the armed Jewish resistance against the Nazis and their collaborators. There were over 25,000, now the estimates are over 30, that there were people in the forests who survived during the war and not just survived, but actually acquired weapons and built infrastructures and brigades. And, you know, by the second and third winters were blowing up trains headed to the front lines and blowing up Nazi infrastructure and really also had their own sense of an underground that was running between the ghetto and bringing people out into the forest and the woods. So it's sort of, a facet of Eastern Europe's um, Holocaust story that is often not really so present. And then the other piece of Four Winters, which is pretty unique, is that we really also have a a wonderful opportunity to meet five women. Um, There's eight people that are, we really focus on throughout the film that 
are intercut to tell the story, but five of them are women, women who participated physically within these brigades as part of the armed resistance against the Nazis and the collaborators. So we really get to also have an opportunity to see and feel emotionally and connect with these women fighters, these, you know, women soldiers, really, in the brigades. And so, did you have the opportunity to interview any of them? Were they still living so that you could absolutely, get to them? absolutely. In fact, I interviewed dozens of people, um, women and men. Are at the time, of course, they were boys and girls, literally, who were in the forest, who were forced to join these brigades. But yeah, we traveled all over the world to interview people, these people, who lived and who lived this history. So the film remarkably allows us to participate in receiving this oral history in a way that can no longer be done. This film is really, truly the last film of this kind that can ever be made. Um, all of the partisans, sadly, who I interviewed um, are gone with the exception of one. And his name is Michael Stoll. And we just talked the other day. And I'm so excited because Michael is going to be joining us. We're going to be able to honor him at the screening at the Academy of Music. He's going to be with us because it's a very special screening because it is Yom HaShoah, which is an important holiday for Holocaust remembrance for all those who were lost. And so Michael will be joining us and saying a few words. And he'll also be in attendance at the after party where we're going to be doing a fundraiser um, to continue to raise funds to help support our work. And Michael's going to be joining us there. We're going to be lighting a candle and breaking bread together. And it should be a beautiful after party um, and celebration of our hometown premiere. Woohoo! At the Academy of Music? Absolutely. The Academy of Music. Wait, me... We had so many people locally, sorry to jump in, who, you know, we made this film here in Northampton. All right. Well, tell us about that. How do you make this film sure. about the... Uh, and it's this extraordinary story. A lot of, you know, I want to go back to the story in a few minutes. I want to know about how people survived in the forest for years during the winter, among other seasons. I really want to understand that and how they survived and managed to escape capture from the Nazis, this armed Jewish resistance, which we never hear about. I want to know more about that too. But first, let's, let's focus for a moment on how this film was made in Northampton. And of course, now we have the uh, screening this Wednesday, the 19th at the Academy of Music. Local, the local connection, tell us more about that. Sure. Well, you know, I've, I've been making documentary films for several decades and, you know, these projects are usually built out of um, teams and communities in between New York and LA. And um, this film, uh, like all projects, I guess, uh, they start in those cities and, and then ultimately, it was such a passion project and so close to my heart um, that I really wouldn't give up on this project. I started it over a decade ago now, especially with COVID. Um, and we just kind of kept shooting. Like I would go on, I would be on another movie set and I'd grab all the equipment and the gear and I'd bump another day or I'd jump on an airplane and go somewhere else to shoot an interview and then come back and ultimately what we decided to do was I started working on the film um, here in my home in Northampton, actually. Up, and, but let me interrupt. How, how long have you lived in Northampton? 
Oh, a long time, a couple decades. I've been going between New York and Northampton, Mass. Yeah, since my kids were born. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so this, as I said, started over a decade ago up in my attic. And I started, so we'd shoot the interviews and this was home base. You know, we did all of our archival research all around the world. Um, and some, of course, in more modern times, like, you know, in the past five years, a lot of this stuff came online, but there were boots on the ground um, going to archives all over. And when we would go shoot these interviews, we would bring flatbed scanners with us and we'd bring all our equipment and gear and we'd scan all the photos. And then I'd bring back all those scans into the studio. And I worked up in the attic for years and friends would come in from the city. And then we had, I started to build a local team of different talent and, um, we just kept working and cutting and editing and then the project would go on hold and I'd make another film on a different subject that was bread and butter gig. And then I'd always come back to this and we worked with some amazing local talent. I got to do a call out to Trisha Reedy, who really from the first days of my imaginings on this film, her brilliant mind and editing and, you know, story built was just, tremendously important and powerful and Trisha worked with me literally from the first weeks of the film to final cuts and uh, I really appreciated all of her brilliance coming to the table to bring it forward there's then I had like producing teams Noel Rayleigh and Zen Chia and uh, Lee Felcher and my sister Lisa and Talia Felcher did an amazing job. Lee and Talia went to Eastern Europe and mined archives and boots on the ground. And uh, there was musicians that participated locally, Caleb Schmali, Khalif Neville, Hayden Felcher. I mean, it goes on and on. Magnin Geith worked with us to uh, do some of the incredible archival restoration. Anyway, there's a huge team of local talent and it couldn't have been done without them. Joyed, Dan Torres has a question for you. Yeah, I wanted to know, how did you get started on this project? Was it you just somebody told you about this and it was an interest? I'm curious to know how, how it all began for you. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the truth is, I didn't really know the story. So when I read about it, I stumbled upon it in some magazine. It was a woman who said that, you know, she went to visit an aunt who dug herself into a ditch and blew up an oncoming Nazi train. And I thought, wow, you know, I've got to make a film about her. I've spent the past two decades making films about resistance and folks coming up against extraordinary odds. And I thought, okay, who's this? I always say, like, who is this little Jewish Joan of Arc? I want to tell her story. And well, one thing led to another, and I learned there were over 25,000. And I think I was, I was just fascinated with the idea of it. And the fact that I didn't know the story was enough to hold my passion for the project over the decade it plus it took to finally create a finished film and release it at lincoln center you know years and years later i, I want to know more about that because the historical narrative that so many people hear is that the jews during world war ii and the nazi era was just passive and they were just led like lambs to slaughter um that, of course, ignores the Warsaw Uprising. It ignores the uh, extraordinary conditions that Jews were subjected to and how they received no assistance at all from the United States or the rest of the world and were left there to be uh, slaughtered 
uh, the six million slaughtered by Hitler. But in fact, there was Jewish resistance. And you tell the story about Jews in the forest for years, arming themselves and, and, and fighting a, a, a war against the Nazis, a story that's not often told. And I'm wondering if that is something or an aspect of this uh, experience that you've had in making this film that has affected you and has affected others. Yes, everything you said. I mean, the myth of Jewish passivity is pervasive. And one of the things that I found so fascinating was really beginning to understand the portal through which we inherit history. And often it's through the perpetrators of crimes. So the Nazis and Hitler's armies, as we know, were very committed to documenting what they did, as sick as that is. And so what was really interesting was recognizing how that informed our understanding of history, because they were filmmakers in their own right. They were determined to tell their story. And so the images that we've inherited, which were an enormous amount of them, moving images, still images, photographs, tell the narrative that they wanted told. And so as we have inherited this history visually and through the documentation, it's really pretty one-sided because the 6 million Jews, not to mention the 13 million people that were slaughtered, they're not in a position to tell us their story through their lens. And so that became really informative as a filmmaker, someone who works with images and storytelling to actually see it through that perspective. And then the other piece of the history is that you know, the larger story of the Holocaust is the story of the Nazi slaughter and the concentration camps and what happened there. And so the story of the Jewish resistance is a very important facet to understand from how we understand this story humanly, how we understand this story as it relates to our lives and our world today. Like we think about the Ukraine, like we think about these movements where people are in a position where they have to stand up against fascist regimes and defend their lives, defend their beings, defend their humanity. And so it's important, I think, for us, especially in this moment in time, as we see the rise of governments that might be perpetrating in ways that we feel are very dangerous, when we look at the rise of anti-Semitism and hatred and bigotry across our country, that we really begin to recognize these telltale signs of the jeopardy that our beautiful, wonderful civil society has and that we really need to at every turn rise up and stand up to protect all the beauty, all the goodness of what we have today. Yeah, I also think we have to recognize Yeah, I don't I don't mean to put a damper on on, on the positive aspect of this, but uh, there was a large story in the Daily Hampshire Gazette this week about anti-Semitism in the Belchertown schools. So yeah. it's, yeah. it, it is, this is not, this is a story that sadly goes on and on. We are speaking with Julia Mintz. She is the writer and producer and director of Four, Four Winters, which will be shown at the Academy of Music this Wednesday, the 19th at 6.30 with this after party with one of the survivors, one of the, one of the, uh, it must be an amazing story that he has shared both on film and will share with us as well this Wednesday. We'll be back with more with Julia Mintz right after this. Then we'll come from the shadow
Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Julia Mintz, writer, producer, and director of Four Winters. The film will be shown at the Academy of Music this Wednesday at 6.30. There will be an after party as well. We should note that tickets are available at the Academy of Music box office and online at the Academy of Music website as well. Let me give you the opportunity, Julia, before we get to some of the other matters I think are so important. Um, uh, you have sp- you have sponsors for the for the fi- for the film for this for this uh, uh, showing at one night only at in Northampton six thirty this Wednesday at the Academy of Music. But I know you want to mention your sponsors because be, without them, well, independent filmmakers sure. don't independent filmmakers don't exist. So who 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 do we owe? Who do should we give some love to? Got to give some love to Dean's Beans. They're one of our major sponsors for making this all happen. We're also going to thank Dimitri and Rebecca at the Firehouse. There's a new community space there where we're going to be having the after party on Masonic Street. And the Jewish Film Festival is also coming in and helping us get the word out and presenting with us. And there's so many other people that are coming in in other ways, but those are our major folks and really grateful. Okay. We should mention the Academy of Music uh, Theater, A-O-M, Theater, R-E. You can buy tickets there as well. And tickets are selling. You want to go and get your tickets and get them early. I suggest that. Let me bring our audience into a, uh, and our listeners into a conversation that we were having during the break, Julia. And that was about a film that was very, very moving to me uh, where I was on a panel with Larry Hott, and the title of which was Who Will Write Our History? And I asked you if you knew it, and you looked at me seriously you don't think i might not know that film but it is an important film it's an amazing film because back made in 2018 i'm wondering if you want to share your thoughts about that the story of jewish resistance in the warsaw ghetto and memorializing and making sure that history was preserved so your thoughts well it was absolutely an incredible piece of it's, a, it's sort of a story of human resiliency and the importance of people feeling like they want their story told no matter what. And so they had collected archives and letters and documentation of what was happening and they buried it in the ground. And Spielberg and, was involved and Spielberg was involved with your film? Yeah, yeah. We ended up getting a fantastic grant from Steven Spielberg's new foundation, the Story Partners, and that was instrumental in um, having their support to do the score for the film. You know, but one of the things about um, the Ringwald archive is that they buried things in the ground. And in our film, Faye Shulman, who's a photographer, if anybody sees our posters around town or has seen our images, she's the one in the leopard coat. And Faye took photographs of the partisans. She's one of the only known Jewish uh, partisan photographers, women photographers. And when we interviewed Faye, she showed us all of her photos and we scanned them and they were really instrumental in telling the story. But Faye buried her photos in the ground when she went out on missions and 
had to move from place to place. And then after the war, she was able to unbury her photos, like the Ringwald Archive. And they're here. They're the witness to tell the story. And like them, they had no idea if she was going to live to tell the story. But she was determined to document it. And you have a lot of those interviews in the film, as well as archival footage, which you have put together. Again, the film is Four Winters. It will be shown at the Academy of Music this Wednesday, the 19th at 6.30. Tickets available at the Academy of Music box office and Academy of Music Theater, AOM Theater, RE, uh, as well. Please buy your tickets early. Make sure you see this film. It sounds extraordinary. Julia Mintz is the writer, producer, and director of this acclaimed and award-winning film. We thank you so much for being with us today, and we congratulate you on the film. Can't wait to see you thank on you. Wednesday. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone. Hope to see you at the theater. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015-1400-1240. WHMP. I guess I called AA because alcohol didn't work anymore. Drinking used to give me a sense of meaning in life. I called AA not knowing what to expect. Certainly not cheerfulness, but that's what I got. People had humor. They seemed to be at ease. I hung around. Now I feel much more comfortable with myself and the people around me. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org. WHMP Northampton.